Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer free ebooks as well as drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com/toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, all that stuff that's more important than you might think. We've got boot camps running every single month here in California. Details at theartofcharm.com, and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. Enjoy. Today we're talking with Stephen Kotler, author of The Rise of Superman, Decoding the Science of Ultimate Human Performance. He is the architect, or one of the architects, of the Flow Genome Project, best-selling author, journalist, and has been researching flow states for 15-plus years. We're going to talk about flow and what it is. It's not some woo-woo, zen meditation type of thing, and we're going to talk about what happens exactly in your brain during flow. We're also going to talk about what triggers flow and how to harness it for ourselves and how flow actually saved Stephen's life and helped him recover from Lyme disease, which is some sort of silent epidemic that you guys may or may not have even heard of. And we're going to talk about something called the flow cycle, which is a roadmap for flow, as well as practical things we can do to work on and make this cycle a reality for us and get more flow in our lives. So without further ado, Stephen Cutler. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about what flow. What is exactly flow? Because people talk about it all the time, and it's some sort of, for some people, it's like this mysterious Zen thing, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm in flow, I'm in the zone. But I think that you've taken it, obviously, to several of the next levels and making a science out of it, right? So technically, flow is known as an optimal state of consciousness, a state of consciousness where we perform our best and we feel our best. And as you pointed out, there are tons of synonyms, right? Some people call it runner's high, being in the zone. If you're a beatnik jazz musician, you are in the pocket. If you're a basketball player, sometimes you're unconscious. This list kind of goes on and on. Comedians call it the forever box. Flow refers to those moments of total absorption, those moments where concentration gets so intense that everything else falls away. Our sense of action and our sense of awareness start to merge. 
our sense of time dilates. So it slows down. You get that freeze frame effect like you're in a car crash or it speeds up and five hours will pass by in like five minutes. Your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness, they disappear and throughout all aspects of performance go through the roof. Okay, that's awesome and obviously everybody wants to be in that and we'll get into that in a bit, but what exactly is it in terms of like what's happening in your brain when you're in the zone? Because I'm sure everybody listening is going, oh, I've had that like this one time or when I do this, sometimes that happens. What's actually going on in your brain? Is it really just that we're enjoying ourselves so much that like you said, five hours seems like five minutes or is something shutting off in favor of some other area of the brain that literally means we have no concept of time, et cetera? Flow science dates back about 150 years. And most people are familiar with the first 120 years, which is when we map the psychology of flow. What are its characteristics? How do people experience the state? What are some of the ways people can get into the state? What has happened since then, in the last 20 years, is we have our neuroscience and neuroimaging specifically has advanced so much that we can now peek under the hood and figure out what's going on. So when scientists talk about kind of neurobiology, they're really talking about three different things. They're talking about neuroanatomy, so where in the brain something is taking place because the brain is specialized. Different areas do different things. So where in the brain something is taking place is very critical. They talk about neurochemistry and neuroelectricity, which is the two ways the brain sends messages back and forth. It's, it's the communication system, right? To keep things fairly simple, we're going to just go focus on neuroanatomy and neurochemistry. We're going to leave out the brain waves. Um, maybe we can get to them later, um, but it gets a little complicated. Yeah. What is happening in the brain during flow is the brain is performing an efficiency exchange at the very basic level. So your brain is an energy hog. It is 2% of your mass, but uses 20% of your energy. So the first order of business for the brain is always, how do I conserve energy? Conscious processing is very slow. First of all, it's also very energy expensive. So what is happening in flow as our need to pay more attention, as our focus goes up, the brain performs an efficiency exchange. It turns off the conscious mind. It turns on the subconscious mind. Now, to do this, huge swatches of the brain are turning off. So the technical term for this is called transient, meaning temporary, hypofrontality. Hypo is H-Y-P-O. It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down, to deactivate. Okay. And frontality refers to the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead that houses all of your higher cognitive functions. So to return to your original question, why does time pass so strangely in flow? Because researchers now know that time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. And when parts of the prefrontal cortex start to shut down, they wink out, the brain can no longer perform this calculation. So we can no longer separate past from present from future. And we're plunged into what researchers call the deep now. Okay. Is this the same type of process that might happen in your brain where if you get in some sort of horrible accident, people are like, I don't remember anything, and it's not just the trauma to the brain, but your brain's like, we don't need to dedicate resources to forming memory. We need to dedicate resources towards, like, how am I going to survive this, you know, shut down, like, coma Absolutely. stuff where people think about all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, you're, you're giving an extreme version of transient hypofrontality, right? In flow, it's very specific structures. Like, let's talk about... For example, why self disappears, okay? One part, part, as your sense of self and your self-consciousness disappear. So there's a portion of your prefrontal cortex that is known as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. This is the part of the brain responsible for self-monitoring and impulse control. 
This is your inner critic. It's your inner Woody Allen. It's that nagging, defeatist voice that's always there, that's always second-guessing. Flow is a fair flow. Flow is a technical term, right? It's the state is called flow because every decision, every action leads seamlessly, fluidly, perfectly to the next, right? It's effortless uh, effort. So you right? turn it's off decision making. Right. You turn off that thing just like alcohol might turn it off along with other important stuff where you go, you have that filter between I want to go talk to that girl, for example, and then you're like, no, she's probably got a boyfriend. She's pretty. And look at you. You're fat now. And all that's that's all. Yeah. So that goes away. So uh, first of all, what are the consequences when this goes away? First of all, as you just pointed out, risk taking goes up, right? Right. You stop second guessing yourself. So ideas can be fluid. They can flow together. So creativity goes up, right? Um, which is not to say that every idea you come up with in a flow state is a good idea. Uh, it's not. It's close to picture-perfect decision-making, but there's an athlete, the guy basically the first American extreme skier once said, flow makes you feel invincible up until the moment you're not. Sure, yeah. That's very, very true. Same thing is true with ideas. Every idea feels, seems amazing in flow, and most of them are, but some of them aren't. And you have to, like, you know, you can write in flow, but you edit sober, is how I put it. That's part of it. Let's talk about the neurochemistry. Let's give people the second half of the picture. So first thing that happens is the brain edits huge chunks of you out of the picture. You basically get out of your own way through transient hypofrontality. Simultaneously, the brain is producing five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce are showing up in flow. There's a cascade, and flow is the only time the brain produces all five at once. Now, all five of these chemicals massively amplify performance and massively uh, – uh, amplify a number of other key kind of characteristics. The first is, is motivation. When researchers talk about flow, they say it's the source code of intrinsic motivation, or they say it's autotelic, meaning an end in itself. So if something produces flow, people go out of their way to get more of it. It's a very fancy way of saying these five neurochemicals are the most pleasurable drugs the brain can produce. Flow is the only time we get them all at once, which means the state is extremely, extremely addictive. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I like I obviously I want to be in that now all day. Yeah, it's very, 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 very addictive. And I mean, by the way, everybody's seen this in action, right? When the coders get so in the zone that they stay up for three days straight to finish the project, it's not the pizza and beer that's keeping them going, right? Right. It's the flow. So the neurochemicals jack up motivation. They also increase learning. And this is really fundamental for everybody. So shorthand for learning and memory is the more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the better chance that experience is going to move from short-term storage to long-term holding, right? Neurochemicals are basically big tags on experience saying important, save for later. So in flow, big neurochemical dump, massively amplified learning. In studies run by the U.S. military, snipers in flow learned 200 to 500% faster than Whoa, normal. Oh, that's amazing. Huge, huge boost. So the last thing you need to know about the neurochemicals is how they impact creativity. When you look under the hood of creativity, what you see is always it's recombinatory. It's novel information bumping into old ideas to create something startlingly new. That's, that's the creative process, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously, you need lots of access to novel information, you need lots of access to old ideas, and that's what drives creativity. Inflow, attention is going up. So you're taking in more information per second, right? This is happening because norepinephrine and dopamine massively jack up attention. 
They amplify attention. Now, simultaneously, they do something else that's really cool. They lower signal-to-noise ratios in the brain, which is a fancy way of saying they accelerate pattern recognition, our ability to link ideas together. So not only are you taking in more information, the norepinephrine and dopamine are helping you make connections between those ideas, usually close connections. Nanomine, which is another chemical that shows up in flow, increases lateral thinking, which is our ability to make connections between tangential ideas. So what you see here is that the neurochemistry of flow literally surrounds the creative process, which is why people report being seven times more creative in flow. Even cooler, Theresa Amadale at Harvard discovered, she's working with businessmen, but they report not only being heightened creativity in flow, but that that heightened creativity outlasts the flow state by a day or two, which suggests that flow may actually train the brain up on creative thinking. It may actually teach us to think more creatively overall. It's a big deal. So neurochemistry jacks up all these fundamental systems as well. So that's kind of what's going on under the hood, and it's a look, a little bit of a look at how it starts to amplify performance. Wow. I mean, that's all amazing, and a lot of people are going, wait, what the hell? That was all Chinese, and that's fine. It's just that brain chemicals are and brain areas are turning on and off and being, I guess, secreted, for lack of a better word, or, or summoned for skills that we normally covet, but they're going crazy, and they're turning off other things that might get in the way. That's a quick, messy shorthand, but I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the uh, 10-year-old version uh, definition. Mm-hmm. It's addictive, though. I kind of want to go back to that. Is that a problem? You know, Let's go back to that, because this is not self-help. And it's not self-help for two reasons. On the upside, self-help is about a 5% gain, a 10% gain. It's slow and it's very slow in small gains. Flow is a step function and change, right? McKinsey did a 10-year study. They found top executives are five times more productive in flow. That's 500% more productive. Let's go to work on Monday, spend Monday in flow, take Tuesday through Friday off and get as much done as everybody else. That's a huge increase, right? Yeah, that'd be right. This is not self-help. It is a step function worth a change. That's the upside. Now, now, the, now the hard truth, as you pointed out, these are fundamental neurochemicals. These are very, very addictive. On top of that, flow is all about mastery, passion, purpose, all kinds of the very fundamental human motivation. So by playing with flow, you're playing with very fundamental kind of neurobiological properties okay. um, that evolutionary biology shaped us to have. You have to know what you're doing because if you find yourself in a situation where getting into fast flow states all the time, right and left, and then you're cut off from them for whatever reason, you switch jobs, you have kids, you get sick, et cetera, et cetera, being cut off from flow is being the same as being denied drugs. Yeah, I was going to say it's like doing cocaine or something like that. Okay, so if you want to put it in drug terms, so I listed five neurochemicals, all right? We won't talk about all of them, but one of them is dopamine. When you snort cocaine, which is the widely considered the most addictive drug on earth, all that happens is dopamine floods the brain and then the brain blocks its ability to reabsorb that dopamine so you get the effect for longer, right? Every one of those five neurochemicals has a drug analog, norepinephrine is speed, serotonin is ecstasy, et cetera, et cetera. You couldn't cocktail those drugs on the street, right? You would end up drooling or dead or whatever. Flow cocktails them naturally and perfectly. It gives you the best of all those highs in a sure. sense. Yeah. Usually addictive. Very, 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 very potent, very powerful. You have to, you know, there is a flow path. There's a way to work with this, but you need to have a 
fundamental understanding of what flow is, how it's produced in the body, how we can create it. There are 17 flow triggers, and there's a flow cycle, and you need to know all these things to start playing with this. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a really bad dark place. Okay, yeah, because it's just like doing a bunch of blow and then being like, oh, I'm going to stop doing blow at work, and then you get to work, and you're like, this sucks, I want to go home, instead of being in the zone or, or in the cocaine zone or whatever. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, let's get back to the show. 
And it's funny because I've actually seen that. I worked on Wall Street, so I, I'm not even just making a joke about it. Like, I've literally seen people do that. No, because nobody's in this zone. Nobody's in real flow when you're checking documents. Let's talk about the flip side also. Something else I'm sure you saw on Wall Street that actually is much more common. Because Wall Street, right, trading, very high flow environment. There's a lot of risk. There's a lot of flow triggers built in. People get into flow. Then they get off work. And that huge high, right, there's a down, uh, there's a low that comes after that high. You go from feeling like Superman to I've exhausted my supply of neurochemicals and now I feel very, very human. And a lot of people cannot, don't have the emotional control to deal with that, and that's when they turn to drugs. So you see a lot of people who work in high-flow environments after work partying excessively hard because they're already in that kind of, oh, my God, I want more drug loop because the flow, flow tipped them there. And they don't know what's going on. Um, and they don't actually know that like more, a little bit of recovery time would give them more flow the next day rather than trying to chase a high. Yeah, trying to be rational with somebody who's addicted to brain chemicals is, is seldom an effective strategy, no matter how smart that person is. True that. Obviously, everybody goes, yeah, 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 you sold me on flow. How do I use it? How do I harness it? Where do I get more of it? It's, I mean, we don't have to sell my audience drugs. Everybody wants them already, right? So where do we even begin to figure out how to get into flow and how to get more of it more often? All right, so two things you need to know. There are 17 flow triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. There are three environmental triggers, three psychological triggers, 10 social triggers. So there's a group version of flow, a shared flow state. You've seen it. You've ever seen a fourth quarter comeback in football. That's group flow in action. If you've ever taken part in a great brainstorming session, that's group flow in action, et cetera, et cetera. So there are 10 triggers that bring on group flow, and then there's a creative trigger. So who are the best at producing flow in their lives have done a very simple thing. They've packed their lives with these flow triggers. Anybody can do this. So let's talk about a couple of these flow triggers. And um, before we get there, let's give people uh, some understanding of, of, of why I talk about action adventure sport athletes and rise to Superman because I use action adventure sport athletes who are very good at getting the flow as my, as my case studies in rise. And so when I talk about these triggers, I'll, first I'm going to talk about how the action adventure sport athletes have utilized them and then I'll translate them for other people. So the action adventure sport athletes who are so great at producing flow um, have rely heavily on the three environmental triggers, the first of which is known as high consequences. Flow follows focus. So every one of these triggers are ways of driving attention into the now. So why do high consequences work? Because flow follows focus and consequences always catch our attention, right? Action adventure sport athletes are one of the reasons they're so good at this is they are functioning in very high consequence environments. That's phenomenal. Everybody wants to break their bones for more flow. Turns out that when you peel under the hood and look at the neurobiology of this, it, you can replace physical risk with emotional risk, with psychological risk, with intellectual risk, with creative risk. All those things work, and it's totally dependent on, on the person. So a big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, he's got to paddle into a 50-foot wave to pull this trigger. But the shy guy needs only cross the room to talk to the pretty girl to pull the same trigger. So... High consequences is the first of these environmental triggers. The second one that these the action adventure sport athletes rely so heavily on, we talk about as a rich environment. That means lots of novelty, complexity, and unpredictability in the environment. Um, these are three things that catch and hold our attention, much like risk does. The natural world is obviously packed with novelty, 
complexity and unpredictability. That's why it shows up so much in action and adventure sports. But we see this in business. For example, the, the best example is perhaps is when Steve Jobs redesigned Pixar. He put a giant atrium in the center. He put the meeting rooms and the bathrooms and the cafeteria and the mailboxes all around there. So everybody in the company would have to go there and bump into one another. Why? People in business stay siloed. They don't talk to anybody outside of their immediate department. There's not enough novelty, unpredictability, and complexity. By building his building this way, raising the novelty, complexity, and unpredictability in the environment, he raised chances for flow and drove innovation in that company. So that's rich environment. And the third environmental trigger, um, and then I'll shut up about the flow triggers and we can go on to something else, is uh, uh, – Deep embodiment. Uh, deep embodiment is a fancy way of saying you're paying attention with all your sensory streams at once. So action sport athletes pull this very easily because they're in wild environments. They're pulling multiple Gs, zero Gs. They have polyaxial rotation, which is rotation around your middle. These are not normal experiences for gravity-bound creatures. So when that happens, this kinesthetic information that comes in with the visual information, all the auditory, it grabs hold of all your senses and your attention is driven into the now. But it it's obviously not just action and adventure sport athletes. Montessori education is a very high-flow environment. It's been shown to be one of the highest-flow environments around, which may explain why Montessori kids outperform regular kids on you know every kind of test you can imagine. But when they talk about Montessori education, they often talk about it as embodied education because so much of it is about learning through doing. Don't just read about the windmill. Go out and build one because it engages multiple sensory streams and it drives attention to the now and it creates more flow. So there are... 14 more of these triggers. If your listeners are curious, if you search Stephen Kotler and 17 flow triggers, there's a free slide share online that breaks them all down. But if people want more flow in their lives, pack your lives with flow triggers. Okay, we're going to link that in the show notes so guys don't have to go out and do a bunch of searches for it. But So we can trigger flow in ourselves or, or set up our, say, our work situation or sports situation to trigger those that state within us. Absolutely. Okay. So does it have to be a physical skill? I mean, we kind of touched on like action sports athletes and stuff like that. Not at all. The, what about the guy who's like, I'm listening to this while I'm coding an app? So we just talked about the environmental triggers, right? There are psychological triggers um, that, are, that are very applicable. But flow shows up all over the place. This is one of the kind of things that we know. The state is ubiquitous. It shows up in anybody, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. And those initial conditions are these 17 flow triggers. So we can set those up and they don't necessarily have to be like weightlessness, crazy sensory. No, all deep embodiment is just about paying attention to multiple sensory streams at once. You know, it's funny because I was having this conversation yesterday. Writing, there's not an artist in the world who doesn't depend on flow to make their living. Anybody who's doing anything creative, flow is fundamental to creative. It's also fundamental to coding, to the video game industry. I mean, these are kind of established facts at this point. So, all these environments are environments that are naturally packed with flow triggers. But if you're coding, right, and your environment is, is packed with three or four flow triggers, you could add in a couple more. You could do it in a different way, and it will increase both the depth of the experience, maybe the length of time you'll spend in the experience, and your ease in getting into the state. That makes a lot of sense. And, okay, there's a lot of guys sitting there going, I don't flow, and I've been working just fine, you know, for 10 years without flow. Is, is it important for everybody? I mean, why is this even important? Of course, for pushing super soldiers to their limits and extreme athletes, it's important. But what if I'm just like, yeah, I code for a few hours a day and then I get on with my life. I don't need flow. 
for starters, I don't know anybody in the world right now who's trying to, you know, keep pace with our fast-paced environment who doesn't need more motivation, creativity, and faster learning, right? I don't, I think those apply, you know, to everybody across the boards. But beyond that, this is one of the other very important findings. In the 1960s and 70s, a man named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who was the chairman of the University of Chicago Psychology Department, embarked on what has become the largest flow study in history. And he went all over the world asking people about the times in their life where they felt their best and they performed their best. And they all told him, no matter who he talked to, that it was when they were in flow. The downstream finding out of this is that the happiest people on earth, and more specifically, the people who have the greatest amount of life satisfaction, overall life satisfaction, meaning, purpose, those kinds of huge motivators, have the most flow in their lives. Ah, interesting. And of course, you have to be in flow to pronounce his last name as well. <laughs> By the way, let's just 71% of American workers are disengaged or actively disengaged, according to a recent Gallup poll. What is actively disengaged? It sounds like the opposite. <laughs> well, as far as I can tell, disengaged is I'm not functioning very well at work um, and I'm not doing my job. Actively disengaged is screw it. I'm going to have a three martini lunch and then go to the movies before I go back to work or, oh. you know, all the way up to sabotage and company. The point, of course, is that, you know, flow is obviously the secret to engagement, right? We know this. It's the source code intrinsic motivation. Something produces flow. It is deeply, deeply, deeply engaging. Um, and, you know, if we want to kind of address worker engagement head on, flow is the easiest way in. Okay, excellent. And now you've been studying flow for 15 years. Where do you use it? Well, I use it everywhere. I mean, you know, everything I do kind of is based around it. I mean, I'm a writer. So if I don't have easy access to flow, I don't have huge breakthroughs. Every one of my books, every one of my articles, and especially anything that's ended up on the bestseller list or won awards, pretty much guarantee I wrote it in flow. So it's been fundamental to my work as, as a writer. It's also, you know, I spend a lot of my time public speaking. Flow is very, very, very fundamental to public speaking as well. I run an animal sanctuary. My wife and I run an animal sanctuary. So first of all, there's an altruism-triggered flow state known as helper's high. Um, so one of the reasons that we run an animal sanctuary is it produces a lot of flow in our lives. Second of all, one of the other things that it does is it amplifies the immune system. All the neurochemicals that show up in flow boost the immune system and they reset, meaning they calm down the nervous system. So flow is actually a fundamental component of our healing methodology. We specialize in very, very sick animals and very, very old animals. Flow is really great in our healing methodology. And I'm an athlete. I'm an action sports guy. I spend at least two days a week trying to hurl myself down mountains at high speeds. I started out as a journalist years and years ago and I covered action adventure sports. So I, you know, I still run around the world kind of chasing professional athletes a lot of the time. And without flow, I'm going to the hospital. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's everywhere in my life and it impacts, you know, it impacts my work as a creative and impacts my work as an athlete, it impacts my work as, you know, kind of a public speaker and, and my work with the animals. So it's, it's everywhere. Excellent. And now Flo's actually saved your life once. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's where all this started. I got Lyme disease and I was 30 years old and I spent three years in bed. And uh, the Lyme, if you don't know what it is, is kind of like the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. No way. Oh, my God. And by the end of it, people are always misdiagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia all the time when they have Lyme. You hallucinate. Short-term memory goes away. You have lots of – you're very paranoid, lots of craziness in the brain. 
and in the body. And, you know, the doctors pulled me off meds. There was nothing else anybody could do for me, and nobody knew if I was going to get any better. And I was literally functional 10% of the time. I was clear-headed enough to work a half an hour a day. Yes. And at that point, I was I was pretty suicidal, not for like, I'm, yeah, I was depressed, but it was practical. It was like, I'm 10% functional. From this point on, all I am is a burden to my friends and my family, and I didn't want to be that. A friend of mine shows up at my front door and demands we go surfing. And I hadn't been surfing in five years, and I could barely walk across the room, and the whole thing was ridiculous. But she was a pain in my ass. She wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave. And after like three hours being badgered, I was like, you know what? I don't care. Let's go surfing today. Yeah. What is the worst that can happen? Yeah, if right? you die, then if you died surfing and not just because you <clears throat> and, drowned and, yourself and in the, the problem, right? Right. So yeah. they, you know, they kind of like load me into the car, and that's the proper word. And they drive me out to Sunset Beach in Los Angeles, which is the wimpiest beginner wave in the world. And summer, so the water's really warm, and the tide is really low. There's nobody out because the waves are maybe two feet high. And they have to walk me out to the break, literally holding my elbows, and they give me a board the size of a Cadillac, and I'm out there. I. You know, it's been a while since I'd surf, but I could surf previously. But I was out there 30 seconds, and a wave came, and it was just muscle memory took over as far as I can tell. I don't really know, but, like, I spun my board around, I paddled twice, and I popped up, and I popped up into another freaking dimension. You know, time had slowed to an absolute crawl, and my senses were super heightened, and my vision felt panoramic, and I was surfing really, really great, and most amazingly, I felt amazing. I'm like, no pain in my body. I felt alive for the first time in three years. And it was shocking. I mean, it was, you know, it was an altered state that was, be I was just like out of nowhere. And I was like, what the hell is this? Caught four more waves that day. And after those five waves, I was done. They drove me home. They put me in the bed. People had to bring me food for two weeks because I couldn't walk, couldn't make it to my kitchen to make myself a meal. Um, but on the 15th day when I could walk again, I went back to the ocean and I did it again. And over the course of about six months, the only thing I was doing differently in my life was surfing. I went from about 10% functionality to about 80% functionality. Oh, wow. So, the first question I asked was, the hell is going on with me, right? Surfing is not a normal cure for a chronic autoimmune condition. And secondly, I've got a science background. I don't have mystical experiences. I certainly don't have them while I'm surfing. I was pretty sure Lyme is only fatal if it gets into your brain. And I was pretty sure the reason I was having mystical experience was because the Lyme had kind of crept into my brain. Right. You know, this was like, what the hell is going on? How could this possibly be healing me? And is it not as in fact, is this a sign that I'm actually just losing my mind and about to die? And that was the beginning of that. And what I discovered quickly was, you know, these, what I was looking at were really deep flow states. I came to understand that the neurochemistry involved in flow jacks up the immune system and resets the nervous system. Lyme, any autoimmune condition really is a nervous system gone haywire, totally overreactive, really crazy, can't calm back down. So the fact that flow resets the nervous system, huge deal in my getting better, really kind of cleared the space for me to actually heal, I believe. You know, what I also discovered, which was the second half of this, which is kind of what led me to the active sport athletes, was the same state that was taking me from really subpar back to normal was helping this entire other category of people go from normal up to Superman. And that was the beginning of what became Rise of Superman. I mean, obviously, that's amazing. And if that doesn't convince people, then nothing will. All right, let's get back to the good stuff. I've heard about Lyme disease before. I know so many people that have it, and it's like I met them all in the last few years. I had no idea it was so common and that it was so bad. Uh, yes and yes. And what people don't realize about Lyme, I don't know what the stats are. I haven't looked in about five years because I haven't, haven't really been dealing my disease for that long. But for a while there, it was uh, second to AIDS in terms of uh, 
uh, virality and where it was spreading globally. Um, it's now they, the treatments have gotten much, much better. I was I got Lyme very early. I was on the wrong coast. They had never seen Lyme on the West Coast. There were a lot of strikes against me, and it's not nearly as devastating, but it's still a very, very, very devastating disease. And you know, if it's not treated quickly, it costs most people, you know, a couple of years at least. Unbelievable. And how do you get it? Ticks or something? I mean, isn't that like tick bites or something? Yep. Ah, unbelievable. So you can be hiking and then get this life-altering disease from a bug that you can't even see. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, ticks are no joke. You got to check yourself when you come back from those hikes. So that's terrifying. And if if you get nothing else out of this episode, check yourself for target-looking tick bites when you get back from hikes so that you don't get Lyme disease. But what are some practical things? You mentioned before there's a flow cycle, and it's kind of like four things guys can do. Let's let's dive into that. Let's dive into that because that's – so the 17 flow triggers are really useful. <laughs> we applied anywhere. But the most important thing I can tell anybody if you want to increase the amount of flow in your life is about the flow cycle. So there is a misconception that flow is a binary, right? You're either in the zone or you're out of the zone. Turns out it doesn't work that way at all. It's actually a four-stage process. There's very precise neurobiological changes under each stage of the process, and you can't shortcut it. You have to go through the entire cycle to get into flow, and then you have to start it over to get into flow again. And if you understand the cycle, as I'll break it down in a second, you can use it like a map. You know exactly where you are at any one particular point, right? So it's like a map. So the, yeah, it's exactly what it is. And the first thing to know about the flow cycle before we get into it is that not every stage of the flow cycle feels flowy. In fact, a number of them are the exact opposite. And you need kind of you need to have this knowledge. You need the emotional control to kind of push through there. And the best example is the first stage of the flow cycle, which is known as struggle. This is a loading phase. In struggle, you are overloading the brain with information. Um, if you're a our athlete, this is you know learning to swing the bat at the ball, keep learning to keep your eye on the ball, whatever it is. It's basic skill acquisition. For a writer, the loading phase for me, if I'm planning a book, this is when I'm determining the structure. I'm doing hundreds of interviews, reading papers, all that stuff. That's the struggle phase. And struggle is called that for a reason. You are literally trying to take the brain to about the point where it feels like it's about to explode, to be honest. Like the point where you're like, I can't learn anything else. I'm totally, totally overloaded. And at that moment, you have to do something really difficult for a lot of people, which is you have to move into the second phase, which is known as release. You have to take your mind off the problem completely. You have to distract yourself. And you have to do so in a specific way. Kind of low-grade motor tasks work really well. Go long walks. Sometimes people have amazing insights in the shower because washing themselves is enough to do this. Workout television does not work here. Um, it does different things to your brain and it actually will, will block that process. Reading will help. Reading is good here. I often use reading as a bridge. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, building model airplanes or model dinosaurs or whatever it is, Seems to work really, really well. A lot of people have told me lately they use that. Playing music is also really, really good. Anything like that. It's playing music, meaning you already know how to play. And right. You're not trying to learn. Your, right, right. You just you know what you're doing and that kind of thing. So that's the second phase. That will kick you into the flow state itself. Once you can relax and take your mind off the problem. As I remember earlier, I said you have to go from conscious processing to subconscious processing. There's a switch that takes place. By taking your mind off the problem, you're allowing that shift to happen. You're allowing the conscious mind to take over solving the problem. And the easiest thing to know here, people get hung up here, and this is just worth mentioning for a second, you have to trust 
that the subconscious mind is a giant pattern recognition system and it will be able to solve the problem for you. It's very hard for a lot of people to believe that taking their mind off the problem is actually going to solve the problem. It's exact, especially very driven people, right? You just want to keep working the problem, keep working the problem, and, right? So it's very difficult to make that shift for a lot of people. That shift predates the flow cycle or the flow state itself, which is the third stage of the cycle. You have this amazing high amplified performance, et cetera, et cetera. That's followed by the fourth stage, which is a recovery phase. As I said earlier, there's a lot of neural chemicals in flow. They require nutrition to reproduce. They, they take a little while till the body can reproduce them. So when there's no more in the body, there's no more high. There's this deep, deep low, and you have to be able to handle it, and you have to be able to handle it for a couple of reasons. In recovery... That accelerated learning we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. if you get anxious, if there's cortisol, if cortisol, the body starts to produce cortisol and there's anxiety, you block that learning. So you may get the peak experience in the flow state, the peak performance, but you won't get the long-term benefit. It'll be blocked by anxiety. Simultaneously, if you want to go back into flow, right, you have to move from this dark low, I'm not Superman anymore, I'm very mortal, and how am I going to function from this point forward, et cetera, et cetera, back into struggle. And if you're hung up, if you're anxious, you're never struggle with a serious fight. So you're not going to make that transition smoothly. So that's the flow cycle. And knowing where you are and what you're up against in the cycle is, you know, kind of the key to moving forward. And it's worth – I want to point something out about recovery. I want to say one more thing about recovery. Action Adventure Sport Athletes, one of the reasons they got so good at flow hacking, it's totally inadvertent, is because their sports are very weather-dependent, right? Big waves, great snow conditions. These things don't happen all the time. So a big storm moves in, everybody goes hard for a couple of days, and then the storm's gone, and everybody relaxes. It's a natural cycle, and they give their body a chance to recover. We don't see that a lot in work environments. I was, I was talking to a, a guy about flow in sales this morning, and he was talking about how you know, salesmen, very high flow environment, and they'll go on you know, tears and they'll massively they'll get in flow all the time and massively exceed their quotas and everything else. Bored for getting into a flow state and you know, doing so well is immediately, oh, let's cut your territory in half and double your quotas. Forget there's no time for recovery. Instead, you've just jacked up the challenge massively and raised anxiety levels and are blocking people out of flow. So if you're really, you know, if you're in a work environment that demands a lot of flow and you start producing a lot of flow, you've got to kind of honor the cycle because otherwise you're going to find yourself working on projects that demand you get into flow to succeed and you'll be blocked in the state. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot more to it than just, you know, doing something you like and then feeling like you're in the zone. By the way, let's talk about what you just said because your point was there's a lot more to it, even what you just said. So why does flow follow passion? What is, what's the big deal here? Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple. Profile is focused. We pay way more attention to those things that we're passionate about, that we believe in, that we care about. We focus more. Passion is a focus hack. It's nothing fancy or mystical. In fact, you know, Dan Pink, under the hood, passion is autonomy, the desire to control your own fate, mastery, the desire to get better at things, and purpose, the desire for it to mean something. All three of those things are kind of built into flow. They're actually part of the three psychological triggers sort of broken down in different ways. So, you know, flow is basically the fundamental recipe for passion. What we literally know of is passion under the hood, and we know it works because it drives attention. Passion drives attention. I mean, you find yourself accidentally in flow all the time. Does that give us a clue that this is something we should stick with, or can you get into flow with something that you actually dislike? There's no short answer here. 
And let me give you the slightly longer answer. What I have discovered, and this is not probably across the boards, but most people spend about the first, I don't know, decade of their career figuring out who, as a writer, this is the point that I was developing my style. This is who I am. This is how I do my thing, right? It's very ego-driven. It's very about, like, me and my self-expression. I'm doing exactly what I want to do and blah, blah, And that, I think that's everybody in their 20s, especially if you're pursuing anything creative. What you find at around, you know, age 30, 31 is that the next chunk of your career is about not doing your thing. It's doing your thing inside somebody else's box. It's, for me, it was when I left GQ magazine where they love that Stephen Calder style and I went to Wired and Wired wanted me to write Wired magazine articles. They didn't care about the Stephen Calder style. They wanted their thing. They didn't care that I was famous for this other thing. They wanted their thing. So I had to learn how to do my thing inside of their box. I will tell you, to me, that flow is always about setting higher and higher and greater and greater challenges. And to me, that's the coolest challenge. Another example in my life is the first time I ever appeared on television. Television is very hard to do well. It moves five times faster than normal conversation. You have very short times to say things. You can't move it all. Otherwise, you look like a wild man because the box massively amplifies everything. In other words, a very foreign environment. And I got my ass kicked the first couple times I was on television. And it took me 10 years of practicing and playing and trying to figure out how to do it well until I actually finally got onto television and got into a flow state and, you know, succeeded. But it was an incredible, it was incredibly rewarding. And now I have the confidence every time I go into that situation. So my answer is, I think one of the most critical things you can do in life is learn to find flow in the things that you don't like doing. Because I think sooner or later, anybody's going to have to learn to do that to be successful. If you're starting out on the flow path, if you're at the beginning of this, you want to do anything that finds flow. So I get, I talk to a lot of people who are like, look, I'm in a dead end job. It's a low flow environment. I have very little power. So there's not a whole lot I can do to import these flow triggers. I'm trying and it's working a little bit, but this job sucks. What do I do? And what I say is you need a hobby outside your job that produces flow and you need it for two reasons. One, that hobby, pick up the guitar, learn how to play the, learn how to paint watercolors, start writing something creative. Action sports are great here. Any sports are really great here. Whatever. The reason you want to do this is twofold. One, you'll start getting more flow in those other activities and it will start to bleed over into your work environment. You're going to start to see those points in your, in your work environment where flow might be possible. So it'll start generating a little bit more flow on the job. It'll also calm you down a lot more so when you go into that hostile work environment, you're not so keyed up and it's easier to handle. Simultaneously, flow does two things. It produces this massive amplification and performance, but it also produces what I call like the high perch experience, which is when you're in a flow state, you see lines of possibility for yourself. You're like, wow, if I'm here more often, I could really take this all the way in that direction. It starts opening up doors. And what I've found, and I don't, have never seen research on this, and I don't think it's been looked at, personal experience and, and working with people, people start getting into flow in their kind of, you know, hobby, and they start seeing ways to connect it with their job. And maybe it means they leave their job and they go for a different job that blends the two together in a way that they never knew was possible, but is infinitely fulfilling. But flow gives you kind of, you know, a high bluff with which to survey the territory and kind of follow lines out and it amplifies your ability to think creatively. So it helps along with this process. So I've seen that work also. Nice. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Stephen Cutler. Anything I'm leaving out that you want to make sure everybody takes away from this? The only other thing I want to tell people is if you want more information, 
flowgenomeproject.co, riseofsuperman.com. And if you are curious about, you know, flow in your life, there's a free diagnostic on the Flow Genome Project website. Anybody can take it. And it basically, I think it's 16 questions, and it just points out those areas in your life where you're likely to find the most flow. So if this is new to you and you want more flow in your life and you don't know which direction to look, the diagnostic's a pretty easy place to start. Great. Thank you very much. Rise of Superman will, of course, be linked up in our show notes, and I really appreciate it, man. Great show. Great stuff. It's important for guys to realize what's happening when they are in flow, and I think it's great for figuring out where you're supposed to be. You know, some people feel that and they go, this is for me. Other people feel that and they go, yeah, well, you know, this is just something that happens when I do sports because it's adrenaline. I think a lot of people who aren't seeing this in their jobs might want to take a good look at whether they're in the right career. I think you're, I think that's a very true statement. Thanks so much, man. Great show. Jordan, thank you. All right, show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Boot camp details for our live programs also at theartofcharm.com, and that's where you're going to find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media as well. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss a thing. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for The Art of Charm Podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's really it. And you guys can help us. Subscribe in iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Write something nice and we will love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. So tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it.